0: Some of you, uh, hopefully all of you are aware that we have been running a an MP campaign, an email your MP campaign, where um, we have been asking people to through using our automated platform, making it super easy. Type in your postcode. It automatically tells you who your MP is. It comes up with our template letter, which you can edit. um, And then it sends it to your MP. Super pleased to tell you that we've had over 9,100 emails sent to MPs as of today. Uh, 76% of MPs have received an email as a result of that campaign, which is fantastic. 72% of Tories have received an email, 86% of Labour MPs have received an email as a result of this campaign, 87% of SNP have received an email about it, and 92% of Lib Dems. So um, if you contact your MP and they claim they haven't heard about this issue, then either they don't check their emails or they're telling little porcupines, which is unlike them. And The average M- MPs have received on average eight emails, each MP has received on average eight emails with regards to Masafariata and Labour MPs have received an average of 37 MP um, emails regarding this. I'm also really excited to say that our campaign has been shared 491 times on Facebook. So if you've already filled in the campaign and you're on your social media, different platforms, then go on there and share it as well. And let's get um, more people, let's try to get to 10K by the end of this week. That would be amazing Um, or more. So now I'm gonna pass over to Matan who has been helping with this campaign and um, helping the fellows who have launched this campaign. So I'll hand over to you, Matan.
1: Thanks, Di. will just say a few words. Can you hear me? Yeah, I'll just say a few words uh, about the campaign. And I am talking on behalf of uh, two uh, fellows, uh, Pila and Douglas, who work on th- this campaign is totally their initiative. They, uh, they wrote, obviously, we gave them uh, uh, help, but uh, this letter is uh, a totally uh, their initiative; they couldn't be here today. Obviously, very busy uh, master students, um, but uh, we are very pleased. We got to nine thousand, over nine thousand uh, letters sent, uh, and 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 this is not enough. In order for this to be raised in parliament and and get the attraction, the the attention that it deserves to have, we need to get to many, many more thousands. And it's really up to any one of us to just share it to people who care about this issue uh, and, uh, and, and just, and just uh, send it either by uh, passing the, the link via WhatsApp or social media or anything like that. It's really up to us and we can get to, to many, many, many more uh, uh, thousands before we request, before we coordinate a meeting with uh, uh, the MPs and actually, you know, request a, mini, a meeting with uh, Amanda Billing or, or, or anything like that. I can tell you also that there have been um, meetings in Parliament uh, yesterday about this issue, uh, and experts assess uh, I don't know, maybe Becca, you can refer to that when you speak that it's probably not going to be. A thousand Palestinian people in trucks being removed at once because it doesn't look good and it won't serve Israel's interests. But the eviction might happen more uh, slowly. I mean, you can uh, say what you think about that, that Rebecca. And this is why this is not attracting the same attention that, uh, for example, Sheikh Jarrah did last year. And what we can do about it is while this is start. Starting to happen. To keep updated. To come to these webinars. To hear from uh, experts on the ground. To see what is actually happening. And continue to send these letters because this is the only way to put it uh, on 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 the list of MPs. Because uh, as as I said, it's probably not going to be like one time big eviction. Um, yeah. So thank you everyone who did participate in the campaign and and and. Uh, uh, and we will be starting to recruit new fellows for our next uh, academic year. It's for postgraduate. We have MA and, 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 and PhD students. So people who already you know, know a thing or two about uh, Israel and Palestine. Uh, so if you know students who would be interested, so uh, just keep uh, posted uh, in our social media channels, we'll probably open the call uh, and during late August or beginning of September. Um, and yeah, and again, in the end, you are also um, open, uh, you're also invited to ask questions related uh, to the campaign in, in the QA part. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for that, Matan. Um, so I'm gonna hang over to Becca now to give us the update. Um, please do type any questions that you've got for Matan about the Masafriyata campaign that the Balfour Project is running, or for Becca um, in the chat box, and we will have time for a Q&A at the end. Over to you, Becca.
2: Fantastic, um, and thank you, Deanna and everyone, at the Balfour Project for, for having us back in order to give this important update. Um, unfortunately, Ali, who was here uh, we spoke in the original uh, event with me, who is both a resident and an activist of Tuba, one of the villages in Masafel Fortunately, he couldn't be here today. Uh, things are very, very busy right now in the area. Um, and so he asked me to come alone. And, and so, of course, I'll, I'll maybe just start by saying that I absolutely cannot give a Palestinian perspective or a local perspective um, as to what the effect has been on their communities, at least not from a subjective perspective. Uh, opinion, Um, but of course I can talk about what is the the outcome of the court case and uh, what does the effect look like from the position of policy and being carried out on the ground. Um, So I'll just start really quickly by saying for those who weren't with me in the initial meeting with us that my name is Becca and I'm the Education Director of Breaking the Silence, as Diana said. And I'll just say really shortly that we are an organization of veteran soldiers who served in occupied territory, uh, veteran Israeli soldiers who served in occupied territories. So, either the West Bank, which we're going to talk about today, um, East Jerusalem, and Gaza. And we've given testimony uh, to fellow soldiers who have also served in occupied territories. After that testimony is verified, it's published, and it's the base of our um, educational work. And and we believe that. these testimonies are incredibly important so that we're having an actual conversation as to what occupation looks like on a daily basis and why it's something that cannot be done morally and that we must bring it about uh, we must bring it to an end. Um, our eventual goal of course is to bring an end to the occupation of the Palestinian people um, and we believe that understanding what it looks like on the ground is the first step to that. Of course we can't do it alone. And we're only one organization and one group of people amongst many who are working on this issue. Um, And so thank you all for being here with us and standing with the people of Masafiliyata and against the occupation. And I'm going to just give the shortest of backgrounds um, on the case. But actually, I guess I'll I'll start first from the end, and then I'll give a short background. The end is what we're talking about is a case of an area called Masafeliata. It's in the South Hebron Hills. Um, and I'll just share my screen really quickly. Um, and we're talking about um, uh, farming communities in the South Hebron Hills. This is one of the villages. Um, and this is the West Bank. In the West Bank, the area that we're talking about, if you can see my mouse, it's at the very, very, very bottom of the West Bank. And I'll come back to this slide in a second. But last time, last time, uh, people said that they didn't get the key. I didn't have the key in. So this time I've uh, included it so you can all see what all of the different colors and lines made. This is the area of Masafiriata. And within the brown area that we see is what's called firing zone 918. Okay, now a firing zone is a zone in which the army practices either with dry fire, either with blanks or with live fire. Firing zone 918 is just one firing zone within the West Bank. I'll cover it in a second. The important thing, if we start from the end, is that in 1999, 12 villages in firing zone 918 and in the area that is traditionally called Masafir Yata, meaning it's the periphery of the city Yata, which it's right next to. Um, were all evicted kicked out from their homes put on buses and transferred out um, when they appealed their case to uh, the courts to the high courts of Israel they were given a temporary um, um, or a temporary standing that allowed them to go back to their homes until a final decision and from ni- and from the year 2000 and until May 4th 2022 those 12 communities, what is today over 1,200 residents in those communities, were living in limbo. And what happened on May 4th, 2022, just a little over a month ago, a month and two days ago, is that the high courts finally, after 22 years, gave their decision. This happened in, in between um, what in Israel is a Remembrance Day for fallen soldiers and our Independence Day. And so it was a moment in which no one was really paying attention. And it was also the last day of the Muslim Hadalei, Idar Fiter. And I'll get more into the details, but the bottom line is that what the courts say about this case is there is no issue. The army has the full right to evict all of these villages. That's the bottom line. Now, if we go back into history, and I'm gonna take just a few minutes to describe how did we even get to the year 2000 and when this becomes a court case, how did we get to the year 1999 when all of these villages were evacuated? So we have to go back a few hundred years. And I'll just say very, very briefly that all of the the communities that we see, and it's the communities that are in um, kind of like pink, if you will, and for example, Daba and I'll talk about it shortly. All of these are the communities, Tuba, that are Palestinian communities that are situated outside of Yatta, And these communities have been there for hundreds of years, okay? All of them develop naturally over time as a way basically to expand the farming for the city of Yatta, so that they can continue to provide food and resources for those living in the city and for themselves. They kind of sprawled up as these temporary, or not temporary, seasonal uh, villages that were being used um, as agricultural villages. Now, when I say agriculture, I'm talking both about things that we think often traditionally as agriculture, growing wheat, growing barley, uh, fruit trees, right? But also when I say agriculture, I'm also th- talking about the more wide definition, and that includes also husbandry, Yeah. Um, And so a lot of what was going on in this land was grazing, um, specifically sheep and and goats. These communities are there for hundreds of years. At first, they're seasonal, but they're constantly, these families and communities are constantly going back to the same exact community that they lived in beforehand. And traditionally, these communities lived in caves. And that's important to understand because um, when we talk a little bit more about the court case, one of the big questions here is, are these residents permanent residents? So it's important to say that before um, 1999 and before uh, the occupation in 1967 and before the founding of the State of Israel in 1948, these communities um, had people who were permanent residents inside those communities, and it, that is well-documented. It's documented during the time of the British mandate. For example, down here in the South, uh, we see Jinba, Hilbet Jinba, where my mouse is, that is a community that's well-documented by the British. It's even on the British maps in the 1920s, 30s. There are aerial photos of it in the 1940s. These are communities that existed way, way before the occupation and way before that there is a firing zone declared there. And in 1948, this area is an area that is part of the West Bank. And if I just jump back into a map really quick, 52. This is a map of the West Bank again they're in the most southern part At the time the West Bank is part of Jordan. Okay, in 1967 Israel occupies the West Bank as part of the six day war and from that moment and until today, the law of the land is that of the Israeli military, the same military that I served in. And that means that the Palestinians who are living in the West Bank, the Israeli military is their government. There is no democratic system. The Israeli military is their government. There is in some areas today the Palestinian Authority. They mainly function in Area A, and that's what you see on this map as uh, uh, the dark brown. But they're not the sovereigns of the land. The sovereigns of the land and the people is the Israeli military. Everything you see in this light green is what we call Area C. And the designations are very A, B, and C. I'm not going to get into them at this moment if if you have questions? Feel free to ask in the chat. But those are designations that were created during the time of Oslo. The important thing to understand for our case today is that all of Area C is sixty percent of the West Bank, and Area C today is um, under complete and full and direct Israeli military control. And that means the approximately three hundred thousand Palestinians who live in Area C their direct government is the Israeli military. And the group responsible for civilian needs in the West Bank is a military body called the civil administration. It sounds civilian, but it's military. There are soldiers who serve in the civil administration, Israeli soldiers, and they're the ones who decide where we practice um, um, with our uh, uh, military uh, jeeps and tanks and guns. Yeah. And they're the ones who decide where uh, people can build roads, where people can get permits to build homes. All of that is being decided by the Israeli military. And within area C, you have huge swaths of land, 18% that have been designated as firing zones. Again, firing zones are areas in which the Israeli military practices or really in this case, are supposed to practice, or designated for practice. And I say that because, as you can see, this whole eastern swath is firing zones. It's a whopping 18% of the West Bank. But in practicality, only 20% of firing zones are actually in use on a regular basis, which means most of them aren't even being touched. Now, if we jump down here to the very bottom, the P on the map means where there are Palestinian communities. And if you jump down here where you see all of those P's, That's Misafariyata, that's the area that we're talking about. That's the area that the the high courts just decided that they can be removed forcibly from their homes. Now, um, I just want to say two more things about the history, and then we're going to finish with it. The first one is that um, there was a document that was uncovered from 1981 in which Ariel Sharon, who was a member of parliament, a member of Knesset and a um, minister at the time, specifically said that we should set up firing zones to prevent Arab development, meaning to prevent Palestinians from being able to develop in the Eastern part of the West Bank. right? So we already can see that there is political considerations behind the establishment of these specific firing zones. That's the first thing that's important to understand. The second thing that's important to understand just to understand the specifics of the case as we talk about it is you can see on the map that there are some areas that have this kind of lined yellow and there's some areas that don't the areas that have the lined yellow all of this all of this uh, brown line is firing zone 918 but those that are in the yellow in 2012 and um, the army said we actually don't need that area in order to practice with live fire so it remains a firing zone but and we're not asking to you know, uh, um, use it for live fire, which means the four villages there are not uh, in direct um, threat of being expelled because of this case, right? Now, we'll see as the case develops that that's not necessarily the case, but I'm pointing this out because altogether there are 12 villages in the firing zone. There are 12 villages that were removed from their homes in, two th- in uh, 1999. But after 2012, the case basically is resubmitted. The state asked that the case be resubmitted, relevant only for the eight um, uh, villages in the parts of the firing zone that aren't uh, in the yellow. Cool? Cool. Again, if you have questions about that, feel free to write it in the chat and I will uh, talk about it as we go. Um. I wanna talk now and and, and give an update about um, the decision itself. I wanna start by saying that I think in our craziest, our wildest of horrible dreams, when we were thinking about and preparing for um, the inevitable court decision um, that the courts were going to make, we could not have imagined a decision Uh, as awful and horrible, and as with wide effects, as the one that was made. And I'm not saying that uh, to sound overly dramatic. I'm saying it because it is an incredibly dramatic uh, and eventful uh, moment in the history of the occupation. And that is for a few reasons. And so on May 4th, um, the high courts, and there are three people, um, someone just said, is it true that some of the Palestinians own their lands? Yes, the, the the people in the firing zones that we're talking about, we're talking about people who are on their own lands. They have documents of their lands. Um, some of the land that they graze on is public land, but the, people own their, the, the, the homes that are built are built on their lands. The, the animal husbandry that exists are on their lands. And so I want to explain what is the ramification, what is the, the outcome, and what are the ramifications of this decision. So, first of all, the high courts, um, and there were three judges, the principal uh, judge who wrote, who, who wrote the decision is himself a settler uh, who lives in a settlement. Um, And again, I I believe that we can see the the influence of politics uh, in his decision. And by saying that the army has basically the complete right to evacuate uh, the eight villages um, that are in the current court case um, and the over 1,000 residents who live there it's important to note that in practicality, what that means is that all of the legal protections that um, these villages had, they no longer have. So if they had, for example, the right to get home, the right to be in a firing zone, and I realize that this might not be clear because why would people know this if they weren't like me uh, having served in, in the Israeli military, but you can't be in a firing zone if you're not a permanent resident of that area. You don't have the legal right to be there, and so. Now that the court case is basically saying you can evacuate these people whenever, right? It's saying they don't have a right to be able to get home. If the military stops them on their way home into the firing zone, the military doesn't have a requirement now to let them go home, right? And one of the reasons is because within a, the decision of the court case, the judges basically rule that these residents are not permanent residents. Right They say uh, they're, they're temporary residents. they have other homes in Yata, right Now, even though multiple evide- types of evidence were uh, submitted to the courts, in the final decision, the courts say these people are not permanent residents of these villages, and therefore they don't have rights to be there. That's the first thing. The second thing. Um, that is incredibly uh, worrying. And this is why I believe this court case to be so dramatic in its decision is because the decision states that when there is a disagreement between international law and Israeli military law, Israeli military law prevails. And that is a total reshuffle Of how the occupation has worked, the legal framework for how the occupation has worked up until now. I'll explain. Israel is signed, like many other countries, just like the UK, on the Fourth Geneva Convention. And one of the things that is stated in the Fourth Geneva Convention is that you're not allowed to transfer out or forcibly move or remove uh, local populations from their homes. You can't do it what the Israeli court decision is saying is, yes, we can. And when they're saying, yes, we can, they're saying, yes, we can, because the military order says this is a firing zone. And in a firing zone, eh, people aren't allowed to be there. And they haven't been able to prove that they're permanent residents. Right? Again, taking aside the fact that the evidence says otherwise, but, but that's what the decision says. This is a, a very, very big legal eh, mistake. Now, I'm not saying a mistake because I think that they eh, eh, mistakenly read the situation incorrectly, but because the fact is is that what gives Israeli military law its standing and the ability for the um, central command, which is the command of the West Bank in the Israeli army, to write a military order that says I'm writing a military order that this is a firing zone. What the legal system that gives the ability for those military orders to have uh, an effect and a standing um, and for them to be recognized by the international community is international law. It is the fact that we are amongst other things signed on the fourth Geneva Convention, right? In which for example, it says in international law, occupation is legal as long as it's temporary, right? Um, And so under that temporariness, we can have military orders, but the occupation itself inherently has to be temporary. And so by the courts making a decision that military order is above international law, they've completely, I wouldn't even say they've reshuffled the deck of cards, they've thrown the deck of cards out, we're in a totally new game. And that is why this decision is so dramatic, because in practicality, and I'll talk in a bit about, in a second, about what have been the ramifications on the ground so far, but in practicality, we're not only talking now about the eight communities inside the firing zone who are at immediate and constant risk of being transferred, of being evacuated. What we're talking about is any Single military order now, not having to fall in line in any way with international law. And that means that the risk is not only on the eight communities and not only on firing zones, right? Because there's a legal precedent here about firing zones in general, but is about the whole entire way in which the law of occupation in the West Bank functions, right? It basically can affect now every single community in Area C, hypothetically. It can affect every single decision of how people can build, how people can uh, uh, get permits, who can live where, right? Every single military order that exists now, according to the high courts, is above international law. And of course, there have been multiple, multiple, and I I myself am not a lawyer, but have been multiple legal counsels who have already chimed in and says, this is a gross misunderstanding of the law and the way that the law systems work. But that is currently the decision that has been made and where it stands. And that is why it's so important that you're here right now and and getting this update and learning about Masafariata because this battle has moved from the legal arena to the public arena. And those who are going to stop the forced transfer of residents from Masaf Eliyata are people just like you. And I'm not saying that uh, as a guess. There are many examples in the West Bank in which public pressure, both by Israelis, and a lot of Israelis today are learning about Masaf Eliyata, um, but a lot of campaigns of public pressure, both by Israelis and by the international community, has stopped a decision from being carried out that has been carried out by. Uh, that has been decided by the courts. For example, Susia, which, one second, um, which you can see here, Chirbet Susia, yeah? According to the high courts, all of Susia can be demolished. This has been the case for years. You're not sharing your screen if you were showing a map. Ah, you're right, I staring my screen. Thank you, I'll share it again. Okay, now can you see the map? Great. So Susia, Susia, where my mouse is, it's not inside the firing zone. But for years, years ago, the high courts last time, 2018, said that all of Susia can be demolished. But in practicality, Susia hasn't been demolished. And that is because of Israeli pressure. A lot of Israelis know Susia as a household name, even if they don't totally know what it means, because of international pressure, because of pressure of Jewish communities abroad, diplomatic pressure, all of these players coming together and players on the ground, meaning the residents of the Palestinian residents of Susia themselves who have taken it upon themselves to uh, kind of go out on an international campaign to save their village. And Israelis who uh, show up every single week in order to uh, document, to uh, go with uh, farmers to their, um, to their land to make sure that they can access their land and aren't being prevented. Uh, by the army or by settler violence, right? All of these things together, both from the the grassroots level to the very high diplomatic level, has ensured that Susia has remained standing. And that is exactly what can happen with Masafariyata. But in practicality, it's important to understand that the need to have our eyes and ears on Masafariyata at all times is crucial at this moment. And it's going to continue to be crucial for more than uh, a day or a couple of weeks or a couple of months. Because as Matan said, um, as Matan said, um, you know, there's a question, is there going to be like there was in 99, a massive transfer? Uh, Take people, put them on military Jeeps, put them on buses and transfer them out. Um, it seems likely that that will not be the case. I can't say for sure. I'm not sitting in any, um, you know, not sitting in any room in which they're making the decisions, thankfully. Um, But as Matan said, we know it doesn't look, we know it doesn't look good. Um, But more importantly, I would say, we should say that it's probably not going to happen because if we wait for that moment, uh, for the picture of people being put on buses, Then we've waited too long and so it's not that i can say for sure that it's not going to happen but as much as um, when we're thinking about how do we act the response needs to be acting for every small thing that's going on and i want to give a few examples of what has been the outcome since the court case only in the past few weeks right because the court case only came out a month ago and to be honest, when the court case out came out, obviously the residents, activists, all of us were very, very devastated. Um, but I don't think, I at least personally didn't expect a lot of the movement to happen so quickly. And yet, and I, of course not, I'm going to share my screen uh, again. But we're already seeing some really important things happening on the ground, OK? So just to give a few examples that show, I think, why we have to be so vigilant and why it's so important. And as Matam was talking about, of writing to um, uh, your members of parliament um, and making sure that the British diplomatic community is involved in this issue, which is an international issue, is because in practicality, this decision has already greatly affected the residents.
0: Becca, we've had two questions about the map, if you don't mind, about the key. Yeah, and sure,
2: I, I, can I can answer that first.
0: Yeah, so um, Israeli Regional Council and the sort of pale blue, what does that mean? And also, what are the white bits in between?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Okay, so the the blue, um, if I'm being honest, I think that um, we, we just redid this map. And actually, this is the first time I'm using it virtually. And I think that we, we miswrote it because what the blue is, is it's state land. And that means that it, it should be what in, in the UK you think of as public land, it's, it's land for, for public use. Um, but in practicality, um, state land means Palestinians potentially have access to it, but also settlements can be built on it. Um, that's the difference between state and public land. It's um, a word that Israel legal um, councils and the high courts use, but it's not an actual legal definition in any other country, at least as far as I know of, except for um, the Israeli legal system in which they basically say if the land is uh, state land, it can also be used for the state of Israel, and not just public lands in which it has to go to the public, and of course the public in the West Bank is first and foremost the Palestinian public. The white um, is private land. And, you know, which basically means that it belongs to any specific, uh, you know, family who has documents who can prove that it is their land. Um, Any other questions about the maps before I continue? No, thank you. Okay, so I'm just gonna give two examples and then I'll stop there and we'll go to questions. Um, But I do think it's important to to understand what are we talking about on the ground? So, first of all, you have down here uh, Jinba. You have the road, this road here where my mouse is, between Jinba and Bir Biral Eid. Around the time that the court decision was made, a few things happened. The first is that maybe some of you who are regularly reading about Israel-Palestine read about an uptick in violence towards Israelis. Um, there was multiple terror attacks that happened in, around the month of April. Um, and what you see here is that there's no fence. This whole entire area doesn't have a fence. Uh, and that became a very, very wide public discussion in the country. Now, I don't know if this is the exact reason, but for, for, because, again, because I'm not sitting in the places that make the decision, but what we see in practicality is that since that time, um, there have been a bunch of um, kind of huge, long tunnel holes that have been dug out by the Israeli military near um Jimba, Malkaz, and Halua here. A lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them have even been built on people's private land and on people's private agricultural land, right? Now people can still move through that area by foot, but that basically means that cars can no longer go there. What's important to understand is it's its harming people's ability to move around in general. Um, and, and of course it's harming people's agricultural land. But as part of that process, um the military basically set itself up on this road. Per- what we can see now has been quite permanent for the past little while. We don't know if it will continue to be, but for now is quite permanent. It didn't used to be there. Um, and people are constantly getting stopped between Birad Eid and Jinba. And uh, for example, groups of teachers um, who teach um, have been constantly getting stopped, wait, sorry, have been constantly getting stopped uh, for hours at a time and not being able to make it to school to teach and then basically being sent back. It also means that if someone lives in Jinba but works in Yata over here in the city and wants to get back uh, home, there have been times that people have been turned around. Nope, they no longer have the right to get home. That's one example of something that's happening. Um, About a week, uh, even less than a week following the high court decision, there were uh, almost 20 uh, demolitions that happened in Khirbet al where my mouse is, um, in which homes were completely demolished and people were left homeless with no place to go in the heat of the summer. Um, and basically are in a process of having to be rebuilt, but of course, rebuilding where they also can't get permits. And it's also expected that those buildings will eventually be demolished. On one hand, Demolitions happen all the time in in Area C and all the time in Masafariyat. And on the other hand, that was a huge amount of demolitions for one day. That was quite surprising. That was perhaps the moment when I thought, okay, this is real. This is, things are happening here. And what we saw only about, um, I think, three days ago, is that at Kirbet Taban, which is a small village, was given 20 demolition orders a couple of days ago and their final demolition orders they only have 96 hours to try and uh, kind of get a a pause on the potential demolition in the courts 96 hours is basically impossible legally to get um, uh, to get a pause on on those demolitions and just to be clear when i say 20 demolition orders we're basically talking about the whole entire village and so now the whole entire village of taban is in very very immediate threat of being completely demolished any day now um, and so this is regardless of the fact that some of these um, buildings in taban have uh, stay orders meaning orders that say you can't demolish them right now even so they were given new demolition orders and we're waiting to see what happens. Um, when we're talking about uh, Yata, um I do think it's incredibly important that we understand that uh, we're not necessarily talking about uh, you know people being transferred over a 1000 people being put on buses and being transferred but when we're talking about all of the demolitions that happened in Fakhit when we're talking about people not being allowed to go home to Jimba when we're talking about people not being able to go teach in between Jimba and Al Eid uh, go between the villages and we're talking about the potential of the whole entire village of Taban of being demolished this is what transfer looks like this is the image that we should have in our head and these are the moments that we need to be ringing the bell and saying, we cannot allow this to happen. I, I just want to end before we go into questions, but just really kind of, um, I know I already said it, but I can't emphasize enough, we have left the legal field. We are now in the in the civilian field. We are in the diplomatic field. And it is it is we are the people who will be the difference between transfer happening or not happening. And of course, the residents of the villages, Ali was here with us last time, are doing everything that they can to stop these demolitions. And what they're asking for is our support and our solidarity and and our demand towards uh, our governments and, and every channels that we have access to, to put an end to this transfer.
0: Thanks so much for that, Becca. And Matan's going to come back as well, I believe. Um, We have had loads of questions in the chat box. I'm going to try to get through as many as possible. Um, We will inevitably not be able to get through all of them, but we're going to try. (laughs) So um, I just want to say that I'm super pleased to see a bunch of MPs in the um, attendee list. So thank you MPs for coming along. We really appreciate you wanting to be better informed on this topic, hopefully to raise questions in parliament. Um, And I have posted links in the chat box for um where we're going to put the recording of this update on the website and um, you'll be able to see it in past recordings but uh the link's in the chat box it's also where we have related resources such as the past webinar that becca and ali did for us as well as um ali's pieces in harrett he wrote a couple of pieces Um, some videos from Breaking the Silence and some other people about the region and also uh, a Breaking the Silence report on the issue as well. So do check that out. Um, We have got a comment from Martin Linton, who was former um, MP, but he just raises a really interesting point. Um, MPs need to table oral questions to um, FCDO by 12.30 on Wednesday 15th, next week, to be answered on Tuesday 21st, the last question time before September. Um, Now is a good time to contact your MP and suggest a question. Most MPs will be thinking of a question to put in the ballot this weekend. So if you haven't already sent an email using our uh, campaign, again, link in the chat box, then please do consider doing it as soon as possible. So, Martin, thank you for reminding us of this uh, very useful upcoming deadline. Um, I've got a question from um, John Hall. Eviction sounds like a reasonable legal process against which one may appeal, but not necessarily expect a halt to we really should be calling it something else, ethnic cleansing, um, illegal colonization, et cetera. Um, so what should we call it? Because it's true, eviction sounds like we followed due diligence and it's an unfortunate situation. So uh, Becca, over to you. What, do you, what do you guys call it?
2: Yeah, um, I think that's a, a really, really great question. Um, I'll start by saying that I think a lot of people call it different things. And to me, what I think is the most important thing is getting the message across by describing what's actually happening, yeah? And we tend to use the word transfer, eviction, transfer. I think transfer is that, you know, that's really what we're talking about, transferring a population from one area to to another, right? Um, I will say some of the words that you mentioned have genuine legal definitions that I, I am... Don't have the legal analysis of an ability to say if it's this or if it isn't this, right? But what I do have the ability to say is someone who, um, you know, worked in firing zones, who um, have spent uh, so much time in the South Hebron Hills and are constantly working with our partners, is that we're against the transfer of uh, any population uh, against their will.
0: Thanks for that. Um so a recommendation from Beth Gibbons who's attending she says there was a very good podcast by the Guardian this morning life in the firing zone on this subject about misafariata if people find that useful so if you like your podcast then do check that out we also put all of our recordings of our events up on um, Spotify or Apple Podcasts wherever you listen to your um to your podcast so if you prefer to listen rather than watch or read, because we also put the transcripts up, then do check us out on Spotify or wherever you listen to your audio. Um, We've got a question from Ronald Mendel, who is a regular at our webinars. Question for Becca. Do the residents of Masafriata have recourse to anybody outside of Israel, which addresses the issue of internally displaced people, which the 1,200 residents will effectively be?
2: Right. Yeah, so that's a that's a really really good question. Um, I can try and give a partial answer from from my knowledge, um, which yes and no, okay. Um, meaning, obviously, the uh, Palestinians of Masafiliata um, are, pa- are 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 residents um, and civilians of the West Bank um, and of what the UN. The UN has uh, recognizes the state of Palestine, right? It doesn't have exactly the same rights in the UN as um, the US does or the UK does or, um, or Israel does, but they do recognize them as a state. Um, and we do know that the Palestinian Authority is going to the uh, international courts, right? So to, to an extent, yes, there is international bodies that one can go to including for this issue right and we never know maybe this is an issue that the palestinian authority will will take to the international courts what i think it's important to understand is that practically those who are making the decisions is the israeli state and the israeli army is carrying it out right meaning if we want to understand where to put our our efforts and our pressure and um, it has to be a diplomatic pressure um and public pressure on uh, this state policy, um, I don't think that anything else has the actual ability to stop um, this, you know, displacement. Uh, a lot of people sent me uh, options for what to call it: forced transfer, displacement, um, um, and we again have seen practically. Um, that there have been similar cases and you know Sheikh Jarrah for example matan mentioned earlier in uh, east jerusalem also it became a household name and Sheikh Jarrah i don't want to say completely but more or less one you know won the legal battle at the state right the battle you know the war hasn't been won but they won the battle um khan al an area in e1 outside of jerusalem the high courts decided that that whole entire village can basically be uh, removed and set up in a new location Um, And that uh, idea or program has been shelved by the Israeli government because of uh, Israeli and international pressure, right? And so, um, yes, perhaps there are international bodies that they could go to, but if we want to make sure that um, this transfer does not happen and forced displacement does not happen, we also have to make sure that we are putting immense pressure um, on the states on the, on the Israeli state policy in this issue.
0: That's amazing. Thank you for answering that. Um, yes, we've having um, a couple of people um, suggesting different terms. So we've got forced displacement from Ron Mendel. Um, Janet Kaiser feels that transfer on its own just sounds too neutral. Um, so yeah, very interesting little discussion there about um, the semantics, really, and the importance of words. Um, Matt Gotthill, are Israeli citizens allowed to enter the firing zones?
2: Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, technically, no. Um, in general, there's also firing zones in Israel. It's huge swaths of the southern part of the country. Um, and, and as I showed the map before, it's 80 percent of the West Bank. Israeli citizens are not allowed to enter firing zones um, without permission. but It's important to say that when we're talking about the West Bank, um, and again, for those who are following politics right now, the government is about to crumble, potentially, um, because of a bill that hasn't been, uh, that that the coalition hasn't gotten enough people uh, to agree to vote for it in order for it to pass. And that bill extends the fact that there are two separate law systems in the West Bank. There is one law system for Palestinians, they're under Israeli military law. And there is a law system for Israeli citizens, such as myself, such as Matan, and such as you all who are, you know, if you were to come be a tourist in um, Israel and go into the West Bank, all of us are under Israeli civil law. So even though it is illegal for um, Israelis to be inside and firing zones in practicality the israeli police inside the west bank this is the easiest way i can put it do not have the political backing to uphold the law against israeli citizens inside the west bank and actually if you allow me just one last time to show the map i can i can show you a really great example of this when it comes to the firing zone 918 and we talked about this um i think we talked about this when we did the original session um, a couple of months ago, but I mentioned that in 2012, the firing zone is broken up into two areas, right? There's the yellow area that be, that's what we call dry firing zone, which means the army might practice there, but they won't use live fire. And then there is um, the Southern part, which is a live fire uh, firing zone. Now, why did this area in 2012, why specifically is this area declared a dry zone, right? um and if we look we can see the answer based on the uh, unauthorized outposts and chavat ma'on is an unauthorized outpost uh, an israeli un- unauthorized outpost and um, and it has homes inside the firing zone so does mitzpeyei right so does um the road that connects to the unauthorized outpost of Avigail, meaning when israelis set themselves up in the firing zone Seemingly, and again, I wasn't sitting in the, the decision room um, when they declared this to be the case, but seemingly um, that is the reason why that whole entire swath of area is now an area that is not at risk of being forcibly transferred, right? Because there are Israelis who are living there. And so technically by law, no, Israelis also cannot go into the firing zone, but in practicality, um, Israelis are able to do a lot more in the West Bank than Palestinians and and get away with it, even if legally it's written that they shouldn't be able to.
0: Thank you for that. Um, We've got another suggestion for a word from Martin Linton, dispossession. All great. Yeah, definitely. Um, From Heather Formani, this question will will reveal a kind of innocence, even though I'm not at all innocent about Israeli military behavior. But I wanna ask how this can possibly be taking place in a world where human rights values are supposed to, are
2: supposed to have priority. It's a tough one. Yeah, that's that's a really great question. Um look, I wanna say as an Israeli and as a former soldier. Uh, as a member of Breaking the Silence, um, by the way, someone asked how many of us are there. There's over 1,300 of us who have given testimony, and every year we're we're getting new and new testifiers who are coming our way. Um, you know, we're not, um, as a people, we're not, a, there's nothing particular about us. We're not particularly evil, we're not particularly good, we're not particular, right? And the situation is 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 set up in, in a way in which um We have privilege. There's a lot of privilege in occupying. We don't have to wake up every day and think about what that means. For us, I think a lot of times as Israelis, most Israelis just don't know what the occupation is. They don't understand it, right? As a Palestinian, you can't uh, go through your life, not in East Jerusalem or in the West Bank or in Gaza and not know the meaning of the occupation. It might look different for all of those people in the same way that it looks different from someone who's in the Safa or Ramada, which is a city, right? Um, but they cannot go through their lives, no matter what age, without having at least some basic understanding as to what the occupation is. And as an Israeli, we can. I can say personally that when I uh, served in the West Bank guarding settlements, I, I wasn't even sure that I was in the West Bank. The, the green line for most Israelis, it, it's non-existent. We don't know it. We don't understand it. Um, most Israelis that I work in have never seen um, a map of the west bank and meaning they've only seen a map of israel that includes the west bank with no separation and um, and so i think you know how is this possible is you know I, I know this there's a quote that's very very popular of kind of the problem isn't with evil it's with it's with apathy but i think that's true most people don't know misafelyata most people don't know what the occupation looks like most people don't know in israel that we enter people's houses randomly in the middle of the night, that we set up check posts and, and prevent people from getting to work, um, You know that we are in charge of the um, population registry, You know things that are really, really basic uh, to any functioning society. Most people don't know that. Um, and a lot of what we're trying to do at Breaking the Silence is push through that apathy Give information and connect to people. You know, we bring people on tours. It's not just with us. It's not just standing with me or with a different guide. It's also meeting people who are uh, living through it in the South Hebron Hills, right? With our partners who are residents, who are activists, who are uh, have families, who are students. Um, And I think um, I agree with you. It's it's amazing that you know, on one hand, uh, um, you know, we can be uh, a kind of say that we, we care about human rights and at the same time carry out policies such as this. And I think the biggest thing that I try and do and that we try and do on a daily basis is uh, to change people from apathy to, 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 to being active against it. Because I, I do believe in the humanity of all of us. And I do think that because of the humanity inside of all of us, this is a situation that we have the responsibility and the ability to, uh, uh, to change.
0: Thanks for that. Um, let's hope that's true. Uh, we had a webinar last month about, um, it was entitled Defenseless and it was about child detainees. Mm. So again, it's in our past recordings, but it was um, uh, harrowing as you can imagine, but they we had three speakers, one from Save the Children Ramallah, a lawyer, Palestinian lawyer, as well as a British lawyer who went over on one of the delegations to examine the issue. But it was a really good um, information. It had some really good information about the difference between the civil courts and the military courts and who gets tried and which one and why it's different and the house um, invasions and the arrests in the middle of the yeah. night and so forth. So if you're interested in that, then please do check out our past, um, our past webinar on that. Also we had our conference about two weeks ago now on abandoning Palestine the um, end of the uh, about the end of the British Empire um, the British Mandate. We have all of the recordings and all of the um, audio up now and we will soon have all the transcripts as well so if you missed any of that then please do check that out. It was really really interesting. Not only did we cover, the history of it, but also the historic responsibility of Britain. So if you wonder why it's such an important matter for the UK to get involved in, that's um, they will, that will answer your questions, hopefully. So we've got a question from Mogamat Kreinstein. How do we get Jewish Israelis who are as critical and courageous as Sister Becca to be better supported inside Israel, to speak the truth to power, to build a united front with Arab um, Israelis or Palestinians um citizens of israel for equ- equ- equality inside israel and to work with the palestinians in the occupied territories they end the occupation this breathtaking account needs to be the function needs to function within a broader movement you kind of answered it a little bit in your last response but um
2: yeah wow i i, I appreciate that um you are very brave in
0: breaking the silence we thank you for having the power it's um it's not an easy thing, is it, to, to do what you're doing? So thank you.
2: Thank you, yeah. Also, I see someone said sadly in their experience, Israelis do you know exactly what's going on. And that's true, there, there are people who know exactly what's going on and, and uh, prefer the privilege of continuing it. Um, and I certainly am not arguing that there aren't people who know what's going on and, and want to continue it, but, um, but rather, you know, that's obviously not the audience that I'm trying to reach. Those people in me have it have a and those of us at Breaking the Silence have a uh, inherent disagreement in the way that we see the world and and uh, the rights of of people um, and you know our, our fellow hum- humanity. Um, but I think that um, you know I think that the that one of the most important things I can say. Um, as a Jewish Israeli in the, the kind of anti-occupation camp is that um, even just inviting us to hear from us and, and to listen to Israelis who are breaking their silence. And I don't just mean breaking their silence um, in the way that our organization specifically were former soldiers, but you know, people who talk um, about the reality um, that is going on in the land that is, is the biggest thing, you know, uplifting that voice um, is, is probably, I think, the best thing that can happen for um, the future, at least on the Israeli side, right? I, I can't speak from Palestinian perspective, but on the Israeli side of a future of um, a genuine shared society based on equality. Um, you know, I think it's amazing that there are so many people in Israel who support breaking the silence. You know, we have, so, for example, and we're just, talking about this today, we, you know, we have so much support, even monetary support from Israelis, but there tends to be this feeling that, um, that talking about this is unaccepted, right? And so the more that it's brought up both within Israel, but also abroad, um, the more that we are invited, the more that our voice is given a chance, the more that I think that it legitimizes also that there are Israelis who, um, who want to end the occupation, who want a shared equality and a shared future and for everyone.
0: Thank you for that we've got um, from Stephen waters. Becca said words to the effect that it is crucial that we all focus on very small thing on every small thing for more than months. Is there a group that films every demolition and names the village it would help us to ramp up the protests with every demolition to ultimately stop them, hopefully. Um, And that reminds me that you mentioned that um, Ali and I believe some of his friends have set up an Instagram account,
2: so. uh, Yeah, yeah, they did just a few days ago and I was looking for it while we were in the practice session but I couldn't find it. So I'll send it afterwards and you can all have it. There's a bunch of groups. Um, I will make sure to send to Diana um, kind of like a whole entire list of groups who are documenting. There's the South Hebron Hills Watch, um, which is a group of uh, US citizens who documents. And um, there are other residents themselves, uh, Ali, uh, Hamdan from Susia, Basel from Twani, and Auda from Umair just started um, a new Instagram account to document everything that's going on. Uh, you can also find all of their own Instagram accounts where they documented, among with a bunch of other residents um, of the area. And there is the Save Masafeliata campaign, which is at I think www.savemasafeliata.com. Again, I'll make sure that Diana has a link uh, to send it to you all and that they're sending out regular updates um, for this exact reason uh, that you mentioned, which is we recognize that you know the need here and the ask here is that we need to be paying attention to every small thing. And that means that, um, that that information has to have a way to get out into the world. And so there are activists working night and day, Palestinian activists, Israeli activists, international activists working night and day, making sure that it's happening, that that information is getting out there. Um, in addition, I'll say that if, if anyone is in the area in the uh, coming time, I'm happy to take them on a tour, come see it for yourself, and you can also follow us and kind of join our newsletter Breaking the Silence. Um, we're sending out regular updates as well um, about the situation in Misafiliata, and, but no question, there are so many accounts that you can follow from residents from Masafeliata, and you can get the information directly from the source. Uh, in order to stand up against it, uh, stand up against the the policies that are being carried out.
0: Thank you. I've just shared the link to the Breaking the Silence website. I've also shared the link to um, the page where we'll be adding this recording and all of the resources that have been mentioned, including the email campaign. And we will add um, Ali's Instagram as well. So share, share, share Let's make some noise about this in all of the different ways that we can. Matan, you've been so patient. I've got a question for you from John Mitchell. Matan, the German authorities are determined to eradicate organizations which are critical of Israel and Zionism. Um, Are there many organizations in Germany who are supportive of Palestine? I see what happened here. Um, Matan's not German, (laughs) nor does he live in Germany. Um, But do you have any thoughts on that question? (laughs) yeah I mean, like um, yeah are there any organizations that are supportive in Palestine um, around the world, perhaps that are Israeli?
1: i I mean uh, yeah, I mean I can I can only say that, um, that that there are we are trying to work globally also uh, the Balfour project is working with uh, partners in europe and and other uh, MPs who. who who believe in recognition of the state of Palestine, who believe in differentiation policies between uh, between proper Israel and the occupied territories, or how we call kosher and non-kosher Israel. And um, and yeah, there's a lot of work to do even here in the UK, specifically with uh, the anti-BDS bill, which seems to uh, have a clause of including uh, uh, territories that are linked to Israel. In other words, uh, it might include even boycotting uh, the settlements. And this is something, um, probably it might be the first legislation in the UK, which kind of uh, sees the occupied territories uh, as part of Israel uh, against international law. So um, yeah. So there are many uh, things to work on uh, here as well.
0: Thank you, Matan. Um, we've got a an, a question from Sui Ang, who's one of the founders of Medical Aid for Palestinians. So thank you, Sui, for all of the work you have done. Um, I had emailed my MP, this happens with a lot of people, they contact us about this. I had emailed my MP who came back with a sympathetic letter that she is aware of the situation, but with no commitment to taking any action. How should I reply with regards To asking her to act. I don't know if either of you have any suggestions for that, because we get forwarded these replies all the time, very sympathetic, but not much commitment to do anything about it.
1: I think think it's important uh, we see some responses that are more personal and some responses that are just a copy-paste kind of response, and some who don't get any response, That's, that's the way it is. Uh, I think it's important to uh, to keep track with us of the numbers, because eventually once we cross the ten thousand, and hopefully we'll we'll will will we're doing we're doing some uh, reach out to some Christian, Muslim, and Jewish groups uh, to expand and to get to help to hopefully to 20,000. Once you will get the update and know which the numbers are, hopefully also how many. Have uh ha- were sent to your specific MP. You know, it's also important to do work around your area so that uh more uh people who who are cons- cons- also constituents of your MP can uh can send them uh that letter. You know, we we, ha- we still have many MPs who got around 200, 100, so 9,000 is a big number, but we still need to. Uh, to get uh, to the stage where your MPs cannot stay indifferent because it's just the two big number of constituents who worry about it.
0: Thank you for that. Um, Pat Bryden asks um, about Israeli organizations that speak the truth and the public, um, to power and the public. Um, we've got Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions, and a great one. And we've got a bunch of others as well. We list a lot of their resources on our website. There's an education tab. Um, some of that is specifically aimed at teachers. Like I said, we're trying to help teachers feel more confident in teaching the subject. But they're also we have online resources, films. Um, all kinds of different things. So do check that out. A lot of them are not produced by the Balfour project. They are um, third parties, different organizations, a lot of Israeli ones, a lot of British ones. Do check that out um, if you want to find more um, more information about any of the different topics that we cover. Um, I have a question for Becca and also for Matan, um, because both of you are Israeli citizens who are very outspoken against the occupation. And Becca, you're a member of Breaking the Silence and, uh, uh, you know, director, one of the directors of Breaking the Silence, Uh, I was, um, and we all here agree that you are incredibly brave because it's not an easy thing to um, stand up and speak on this topic if you are an Israeli citizen. So I just wanted to ask you what consequences you have faced as a result of that. Has your life been made more difficult? Becca, do you have stories about that being the case for other members?
2: Um. Yeah, that's um, that's a great question. Um, definitely, you know, I mean, I think on one hand, like, look, um, I think being politically, uh, I don't know if I would go, I guess, technically a dissident, but that seems almost like so radical, right? I was going to say, you know, it's, I'm still living in a country um, that has uh, some, even many democratic principles, Um and so obviously, you know, I'm not worried about, and I don't think we're not worried about, um, you know, being put in jail, for example. And, and I say that because in October, um, six um, uh, civil society organizations, I believe some of who you've talked to, um, were declared terrorist, six civil society Palestinian organizations were declared terrorist organizations, um, even though there has been no um, specific proof that Israel that this that the government has been able to show connecting them to terror activity um, um, and I and I you know when that happened I think there's a real question about you know are people are certainly at risk of, of potentially being put in jail for the and for the political and human rights work that they're doing um, I would say that in a um, on a different level, of course, you know we had a whole entire period between about 2015 to 17 that we were widely and harshly attacked. We were accused of collecting state secrets, which we do not do. We were accused of lying, which we do not do. We had people um, who came and were placed into our organization secretly, took video recordings of us, and then released it um, into the media. Um, the um, our director at the time um, had to. Kind of you know go around for I think about six months with a security guard and because she was became so well known and there were so many threats on her lives and against other members of breaking the silence um and so in that sense of course um you know and of course also well, sometimes when we are in places like uh, Hebron you know the the Israeli settlers inside the city when we're giving tours and um, for the most part verbally attack but you know every so, every so often also something and more you know, nothing. I don't want to, you know, sound uh, too extreme, but you know, been egged multiple times at the very least, right? And um, I think what it really comes down to, and this perhaps is the thing that I think most of us feel the most on on a daily basis, if if I can say, is just the the the, spe- the specificness of, um, you know speaking out against something that you know is wrong, that you know is immoral, that um, you know, I can say personally, I, I I moved to Israel. I was not a citizen before. My grandmother was a Jerusalemite, and um, but I was not a citizen and because of my belief of the need for safety for the Jewish people and for flourishing uh, of the Jewish people. And then uh, to realize as a soldier that one of the major things we're doing as an army Is controlling another people was something that I personally could not uh, continue living with and 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 remain quiet about. And I think that sometimes one of the heart, the harshest and the hardest things, um, is how much of society thinks that we are um, that we're harming uh, society, right? Even though we're we're asking for equality, or that we are traitors to our people and to our society. You know, I think that is a very specific type of um, harshness. Uh, to feel, to to feel a part of sometimes, um, but also uh, I'm very very grateful for the, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in the country who stand with us, and, you know, we are, I think people are often surprised that we work sometimes even with very very normative, very mainstream, groups um, to get our message out, and you know I think a lot of times for Israelis the hardest thing, um, is to sit down with us. Right. I think once once they sit down, I actually think almost always that we can find a common ground, not with everyone, but with a lot of people. And therefore, I really think, you know, the, the hardest work that we have uh, is getting people to sit down and talk to us and, and, and hearing what the reality is like. um, But uh, we're going to keep uh, doing it. Well, thank you for situations. And oh. what about you, Matan? You're, of course, a
0: former soldier as well. Um, you live now in the UK. So, have you? What What's your experience been like? Has it made your life more difficult?
1: I think I think I'm uh, I think I'm uh, beyond that point because you get to a stage where you really understand what your values are. But you know, it took many years in of friends who try to silence you. Uh, I speak in the on high, in high schools uh, as part of uh, solutions, not Size. and I, and I tell them because this question comes often. You know, my mom used to tell me, uh, Matan, if you speak badly about Israel abroad, I will uh, put your name off my uh, off the wheel. Uh, so you know, we can laugh about it now, but back then, you know, it's. Uh, uh, that's that's how people see us sometimes as traders. And when you are close, and when it's inside the family, it can really uh, create problems in the family. And, and uh, but you also keep on what you believe. And today, my mom is in 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 pension, and she is part of Women Wage Peace, for example. Uh, so you also see change in uh, in, in circles around you. Uh, and also the Israeli peace camp is not is not only one thing. and I think many in the Israeli peace camp would, would still be feel troubled by me, for example, working outside of Israel to get uh, you know uh, countries like the United Kingdom putting pressure on it, or uh, Becca speaking on a Balfour project webinar. And this is also something that we want to, to normalize, that it's not uh, only between Palestinians and Israelis, it's an international conflict and, 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 and it's totally kosher. It's, it's pretty much the same kind of democratic values that we fight for in Israel and Palestine, but also abroad for countries to, 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 uh, to do the right thing as, as, as real friends should.
0: Thank you so much for that. Um, I am posting some links now in the chat box. They are our donation links because we are a charity and we offer these um, webinars for free because we want to try to get them out to as wide amount of people as possible so please do share the links with our recordings and so forth um but we do appreciate support so if you can give us a one-off donation if you found this webinar useful we'd really appreciate it better yet if you sign up to be a friend of the balfour project and that means signing up to regular giving either monthly or annually of any amount you become a friend of the balfour project with um various quirks and perks, let's call them. Um, So please do consider that, we'd really, really appreciate it. Now, um, I'm really excited to say that in the time that we've been doing this webinar, um, some people have been active because we've got over a hundred more emails that have gone to MPs um, through our platform, which you can find again on on the link in the chat box, find it on our website. and the before I remember it was 76% of MPs in the UK had received um, had received at least one email about this it's now gone up to 77% um, we have um, we're going to continue running that because we are we think it's super important and I am going to finish with one last question um, which is from Nagia Said do you think there's a difference in perspective between younger Israelis and older ones? I'm hoping this question ends on a hopeful note, but don't lie to me if that's not the case.
2: No, I, I think there is. Um, I think that there is... Older older Israelis, like 60 plus, tend to be more uh, in the peace camp. Um, they also remember a time before The 1967 occupation, for example, Um, I would say then eh, the majority of the people who are uh, younger are more right wing. Um, I will get to a hopeful point, don't worry. Um, But for example, only 7% of young people. um, Only 7% of young people identify themselves as leftists in Israel. and yet I would say that there is a very, very big change that we are seeing in young people, um, both people a little bit before the army and people who are after the army, I'm talking now about uh, Jewish Israelis, um, I think are becoming more open. I think that the fact that the reality of the world right now is is much less stable than, um, than what, you know, I'm 33, even much less stable than what I grew up in. A lot of the kind of basic assumptions that I had growing up in the world, people today who are in their early 20s don't have. People today who are, you know, in their late teens don't necessarily have. And so on one hand, you find that Israelis are much more right-wing than they used to be. People feel much less hopeful. But on the other hand, once you actually start, you know, I constantly talk about the narrative that upholds the occupation of Israeli society is kind of big wall. And on one hand, the wall keeps getting taller. We keep adding more and more to the narrative, right? We keep making it less and less possible for uh, Israeli Jews to learn about Palestinian narrative, to learn about the occupation, right? to, to um, learn about Palestinian identity even, right? even before we're talking about conflict with occupation. Um, now, currently there is a fight in the Israeli public of should Palestinian as citizens of Israel even be able, and Palestinians under occupation, be able to raise the Palestinian flag. Um, and so the, the wall is constantly getting taller. But as we know, um, I'm sure someone here um, is, you know, an engineer and builds stuff. Um, the taller you make something, the less stable it becomes. Right. And so what I found is a lot of times um, taking people on tours, even just having conversations with people over coffee, um, you know, you start poking holes in that narrative. You take out one, you, you manage to push out one um, brick here and one brick here and one brick here. You really see very, very practically that for a lot of people, that wall is falling down. Um, And you see it in things like Sheikh Jarrah, that campaign is being run by young people, Palestinians and Israelis. You see it in Masaf al-Yatta, those campaigns are being run by young people, um, Palestinians and Israelis. Yeah, You see it um, also in areas also within the country like and people coming to protest together, young people. Uh, uh, Jewish and Israeli, uh, Jewish and Palestinian Israelis. And so on one hand, if you look at um, you know, how people say that they're going to vote or how people self-identify the situation, the picture is not pretty. But if you look a little bit further into that, and you see who are leading the campaigns for change right now, who are the voices who are demanding for an end to this reality? Who are the voices demanding equality? They're young people. And in that, I think we have a lot to be hopeful to be hopeful for, and, um, you know, I think because of of young people, both definitely Palestinians in a place like Masaf and people like Ali, who was here last time, and and other activists like him, and and the Israelis who are there, really a lot of them on a daily basis uh, supporting, you know, not only are we going to be able to to stop uh, uh, the forced transfer on Masaf but even, uh, I can already imagine the day when places like Jimba, and Taban are going to be um, beautifully built communities with with building permits and master plans, you know, who will, who will be, uh, you know, opening hotels for us to all come and uh, and have a lovely holiday in uh, in Masafeliata. I, I don't think it's, it's that, I don't think that's crazy and I don't think it's far-fetched and I don't think it's that far away. I'm waiting for that day to come and, and uh, committed to, amongst so many other young people, to to bringing that reality to uh, to present time.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you, Becca. Thank you, Matan. You're both so brave and amazing, and we're really honored to be able to work with you. Um, so we're gonna wrap up now. we allowed a bit of extra time for the Q&A, it was just so interesting. Um, But please do join me in thanking Becca and Matan, feel free to drop them a little thank you in the chat box, I will be sharing it with them so they will read all your comments and your questions we tried to get through as many as possible. I tried to pick from each of the different themes of the questions as well so apologies, if we didn't, um, if we didn't get to your question, hopefully. we will next time so please do drop your thanks and i will share it with both of them and we will see you if you're not going to be joining us the education workshop then we will be announcing our following webinars very shortly we've also got one coming up don't we we've got a couple matan from our fellows um one of the groups is doing a um a series of webinars on conflict and um, culture so there's one on archaeology one on architecture and one on food so those are coming up in the next few weeks so do keep an eye out for that we will be announcing them very very shortly um again thank you so much becca thank you so much matan and thank you of course to all of our supporters that have come along i'm really pleased i'm watching my emails and i can see that some of you have already signed up to become friends of the balfour project thank you thank you thank you and we'll see you next time have a lovely rest of the day Bye. Thank you.